Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Vegas Therapist. I am your host, Ryan Winder. And remember, what's happening in Vegas is not staying in Vegas, as I bring you helpful tips and all sorts of topic areas, with a Vegas twist of course. So let's get the show started. Welcome, welcome everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Vegas Therapist. I do once again have a great show for you. Um, but before we get into today's program, I just wanted to send a shout out and a thank you to my guest last week, Theo Fleury, who was just an amazing guest and has such a great story and is so insightful about trauma and healing from trauma. Um, and is just an advocate for mental health all around. Uh, if you didn't pick, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, I highly recommend it even potentially recommending going back and listening before this episode, because I'm going to do some follow-up on trauma. Um, and that was a big topic that we covered in that episode. So once again, just a great episode. Thanks to Theo for coming on and sharing his story and every, all of his insights about healing and just some of the things that he has to offer people in his own ways. Um, just great episode. And I really appreciate the feedback I got from that episode. So many people, um, emailed me and made comments on Facebook about how wonderful it was and how much they enjoyed uh, the show. So thanks again for that. And um, just want to remind people too, if they want to email me anything about the show or about topic ideas or questions they might have, you can do that at thevegastherapist at gmail.com. Also go ahead and go onto Facebook and join the Vegas Therapist podcast, Ryan Winder Facebook group. Um, and I typically try to just post different quotes, links to the podcast, and I'm open to other comments and things that you might have to offer on that as well. So Vegas Therapist Podcast Group is available to anybody. Just go ahead and join that. And once again, you can email me um, anything that you'd like to hear as far as topics on the show, uh, the Vegas Therapist at thevegastherapist at gmail.com. So thanks again for all your support. And uh, really looking forward to many more episodes in the future and got some things lined up that I'm really excited about. So um, back to today's show. I just wanted to, like I said before, just do a follow up to my last episode with Theo Fleury um, and focus on trauma. I mean, there's so much to talk about in, re in regards to trauma, uh, so many things that we can focus on. But I wanted to just try to touch on three different topic areas in relation to trauma today. The first one being just some of the science of trauma, how trauma occurs and the impact it has on our bodies and our brains, um, and just go into that a little bit. The second thing is to identify, to help us to identify some of our trauma patterns in our own life. Um, so as the result of trauma, we tend to have these various patterns that we pick up on and the way that it kind of governs our lives is very important in terms of understanding uh, in relation to our healing. And the final thing is the process of beginning to heal our trauma. We're not going to go into that um, a ton, but we kind of go into some basic things for healing trauma. Um, so anyway, those are the three things I want to focus on today. I think it'll be some great information for us. And I've got some different stories and things to connect to as far as that. Um, but as far as the science part goes, um, I just want you to kind of bear with me because there is some really interesting stuff, but it's science stuff. It's not necessarily things that, um, are experience oriented or they've got some stories attached to it or anything like that, but it's just the science. But like I said, it really sets the science really sets the stage for, 
for what happens to us when we experience trauma. So I think it's an important aspect to know. And for the science part of it, I'm going to be referring to a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is just an amazing book for understanding the impact of trauma and the science involved in trauma uh, with our bodies and our brains and things that go on for us. So if you haven't checked that book out, um, uh, I highly recommend it. Again, The Body Keeps the Score is the book. Um, so let's start with this as far as um, the book goes and just some of the things it talks about. Um, the brain. The most important job of the brain is to ensure survival. Um, so when trauma occurs, it disrupts that process. Typically, um, the disruption is an oversensitivity to anticipating some type of danger. That's a lot of what you know trauma does to the brain. And so tied into the brain, obviously we have different parts in the brain. The amygdala, if you're familiar with the amygdala, it's often referred to as the smoke detector. And that functions to identify whether incoming information that we're receiving is relevant to our survival. Um, so basically then, because... Of, of trauma, the impact that it has on the amygdala is that it increases the risk of misinterpreting whether a particular situation is dangerous or safe. So example, just think about this. It, like you walk into a room and what when you walk into a room and there's people around, you immediately start kind of trying to read people's body language, kind of assess kind of where they're at, um, what their mood is, different things like that. And what happens um, as a result of the impact of trauma to the amygdala is like it was saying is that a lot of times we misinterpret the, um, what's actually uh, could be going on or the potential for danger. And so uh, it basically we um, as a result of that in the book, it talks about how we have a, how faulty alarm systems lead to blowups or shutdowns in response to innocuous comments or facial expressions. So basically we, we misread a lot of stuff and um, and so if our amygdala goes into overdrive, we actually may become chronically scared that people hate us or they're out to get us, which is just when you think about it is a terrible way to live. If they were constantly worried about or thinking about the, the fact that people might hate us or that they're out to get us, um, very stressful, very anxiety inducing if we, if we're, if we're heading down that path and, but you know, ultimately that's what trauma does to the amygdala. And so it's not necessarily always something that we can control. Um, but it's just something that's happening to us as a result of this, um, overactive or misinterpreting or misfiring amygdala. That's now a part of our brain. So that's, that. So if you just think about that in and of itself and how that operation goes, um, that's a huge, that's a huge thing for us. Um, you know, for going around misinterpreting different things. I mean, I see that a lot in couples too. I mean, when couples experience trauma within their relationship, you know, how that leads to misinterpreting, um, you know, facial expressions, comments, different things like that. And it really can cause a lot of problems when, you know, the other person feels that misinterpretation and has no really intention of being negative, but it's always being assumed because again of that pa past trauma that's happened in the relationship. So a lot there just in, in one thing. So the, uh, another component that is impacted is um, the frontal lobes. And as long as you're not too upset, your frontal lobe can restore your balance by helping you realize that you're responding to false alarms and that you can abort the stress response. That's what the normal acting frontal lobe, that's what it can do for us. 
However, with PTSD, the critical balance between the amygdala, which is again, the smoke detector and the frontal lobe, which is referred to as the watchtower, this shifts radically, which makes it much harder to control emotions and impulses. So a lot of times we're just, you know, we're super angry or we're super sad or we're just reacting to things. We're impulsive, whether that's with addictions or spending or other things that we do, we just are reacting because we don't have that um, balance with our, with our frontal lobe that's helping us to govern those things. So effectively, another thing about stress too is effectively dealing with stress depends upon achieving a balance between the smoke detector, the amygdala, or the watchtower, which is the frontal lobe. So that's where that comes into play is, so now we've got this um, thing going on where, okay, we've got the, the amygdala, which is, you know, causing us to misinterpret things, which puts us in more of a state of feeling like we're in danger. And then when those emotions in us start to rise, um, we don't have anything to balance us out because the frontal lobes are messed up. So, and, and, you know, again, you can see the perpetuation of some very challenging things. Um, other fallouts of trauma in the brain include um, uh, this one, which I thought was interesting, is that if trauma is not resolved, stress hormones that the body secretes to protect itself keeps circulating and then defense movements and emotional responses keep getting replayed. So that's, a, you know, that puts a lot of stress on the body as well as these stress hormones keep kind of just going and going and going. The result of that is, is that you end up constantly fighting unseen dangers, which then that leads to exhaustion and then leaves you fatigued, depressed and weary. So again, not a good thing for people that are in this constant state of, uh, of, of trauma or, you know, and again, maybe they don't even recognize that that's even what going, what's going on. I think a lot of times people don't even realize that they're under that state with their trauma. They're just kind of either they've gotten used to it or they're just, again, in this constant state of fight or flight, which I'll kind of talk about later. But, um, you know, but that that's very exhausting to be in that state constantly when those stress hormones are constantly firing and your emotional responses continue to get replayed over and over again. So, um, and this kind of leads into the next part of the brain, which is impacted, which is the thalamus, because that the thalamus actually acts as the gatekeeper and is a central component to our attention, our concentration, and new learning. Now, people with PTSD, they have their floodgates kind of push wide open and are on constant sensory overload. And that's because, again, they don't have the gatekeeper or the, the thalamus is out of whack and it's not, you know, kind of holding things in, in check. So the thalamus, um, because it's been damaged and the gatekeeper is broken, um, you know, that that's some of what the brain, that's some of what happens to the brain with, with trauma. Um, and again, just in those things in general, that's kind of just like, not necessarily the tip of the iceberg, because I think that's a lot of the, the main components that go on. But just even when you think about those things, that's a lot to take in. And that's a lot of love of misfiring parts in our brain as a result of our trauma, which is why trauma is so impactful. And it's why it's something that, you know, I think we need to be aware of, we need to talk about and we need to understand so that we can move towards healing. 
um, which is something we're going to get to obviously later on in the episode. So now as we kind of have a better understanding of what happens in the brain and just maybe thinking about those things, and I want you to think about those things as we kind of move forward into the idea of some of the examples I'm going to give at this time, just in what you hear and how you can see those things being perpetuated in, in people's patterns. Um, so as we shift to identifying traumatic, traumatic patterns in our lives, I think I mentioned this on the, on the last episode with Theo Fleury, but it has been said that those who are traumatized continue to organize their lives as if the trauma was still going on, which again is a very sad thing, but it's kind of just what you know. And because that trauma is so impactful and because your body is holding it, it's just, it, it is in constant thought of danger. And so it's continuing you. So we continue to, like I said, organize our lives in that manner. Now, I thought it's interesting is that, you know, I actually asked Theo Fleury that question. And if you remember it from the podcast, um, you know, so we can kind of get a sense of what this looks like in real life. You know, I thought he gave a, an, an excellent example, in, you know, on the podcast. He said that um, uh, that he grew up in chaos and obviously trauma. He had, he experienced trauma on multiple, in multiple levels. Um, and so because he grew up in that chaos, he kept that going when he would get on the ice and he would try to create chaos as a way, a way of feeling comfortable because that's what he knew. And that's where he felt you could almost say safest was in chaos. Now he kind of kept that to the ice and the way they approach things there. But I mean, if you look at his life and I mean, I, re you know, read his book, um, and I mean, there was chaos in all aspects of his life. You know, when he wasn't on the ice, he was creating chaos in his relationships. He was creating, creating chaos, you know, in places that he went and, and different things like that. So it was just like this constant state of chaos. And, but that's how he organized his life as a way of dealing with his trauma because the trauma was all a part of that. And it was just what he, again, like I said, felt comfortable with, and that's what he knew. Um, so another example um, of this kind of like how we organize our life around our trauma um, is a client that I've worked with in the past. And so what happened in his situation was that um, his one of his friends who he, you know, invited over to his house and kind of, you know, made it seem like would be a safe thing, um, ended up molesting his sister. Um, and so obviously, when that came out, he was traumatized about that, about the fact that this had happened, you know, with his friend who he'd, you know, invited over to his home and then finds out later that he had done that. And he'd also done it to other girls. So it wasn't just this one situation. So the kid was definitely, you know, a predator of sorts or had some issues with, with doing this. Um, but nonetheless, it still was very traumatic for my client. And some of the trauma, not only just about, you know, his sister being, um, molested, but even some of the handling of it didn't, you know, kind of added to the trauma. And, you know, back then when this happened, you know, it was something that people looked at in a very more shaming way. And so, you know, like I said, that kind of, that added to the trauma as well. Um, but because he was traumatized, he, he felt also responsible, um, for allowing his friend in his home so then you might say, okay, well, what happened to him? Like, how did he organize his life around his trauma? Well, because he felt responsible, his life has been organized by being overly um, responsible for everyone else's needs and feelings while putting his needs and feelings to the side. 
So that's in a nutshell kind of what he's done is, okay, let me take care of everybody else. Let me make sure they're okay. Let me make sure their needs are in check. Um, but if I have something I need or something that is important to me, I just got to put that to the side because that's not okay. So the message that he sends himself is that I don't deserve to have my needs met and I need to repay or make up for what happened by putting everyone else first. That's kind of what he's doing is, you know, to, to almost like you could say avoid the guilt or avoid maybe even more of the shame that comes with what happened. And, and so as long as I continue to do that and not hurt other people by not meeting their needs, then somehow that will make up for what's happened to my sister. And that's just, again, I mean, you can understand it. It makes sense logically, but obviously from a, you know, from the standpoint or logically, maybe it doesn't make sense logically. I guess it makes sense based on what's happened, but from an emotional standpoint and a healing standpoint, he has to get to a place of forgiveness and allow himself to heal and allowing himself to recognize that that was not his fault. This person was a predator. He did this in his own doing. And, you know, it might've been a thing where if it didn't happen in that time, it might've happened later. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's where that's at. So, um, anyway, uh, uh, something else I wanted to think about or I wanted to kind of get to another example. Now, this one, this example kind of hits home for me. Um, it's something that I'm connected to. Um, but if you follow my podcast, um, you know, in the past and you've listened to some of the earlier episodes, you will know that when I was nine years old, uh, my brother at the time, who was five, uh, was shot accidentally on our farm that we lived on. And um, that happened, you know, I was home, so I witnessed the whole thing. I was a part of it. I was, you know, not, not a part of the shooting, but just a part of the whole process of him being shot and kind of helping him and getting him to the hospital and all these different things. And anyway, it's a whole ordeal, but very traumatic, um, not only for him, but all involved, um, as a, it was a very life-threatening kind of situation. And, you know, obviously seeing your brother's leg kind of dangling from his body, uh, just not a lot of good images there. But, um, but one of the things, you know, because it obviously it was traumatic for him. So I actually took some time this week and I asked him the question, you know, how do you think that you've organized your life in ways that your trauma is still happening? And, you know, he took some time to think about this and some of the obvious ones that kind of came to mind right off the bat was, uh, you know, that of course he doesn't have guns in the house. Um, and you know, he's been uncomfortable or never really been comfortable around guns, you know, since that time. And we're talking like this happened when he was five, he's, you know, 41, 40, something 40. Um, sorry, Kent. Uh, but so 35 years ago, we're talking that this happened and there's still a discomfort around guns. Um, I kind of have a similar discomfort around guns, so I won't lie about that. I mean, I think that's something that I struggle with too, just to, to you know, to kind of have that. I guess once you see what they can do, uh, you know, on a on a very close up level, uh, they, you recognize the that that the power that they have. So, anyway, but so that was one of the things. You know, he he still kind of resorts to that, not really being comfortable around guns. Um, he also mentioned that he gets worried when his kids are doing something. Um, even if that, that something's not dangerous, he just worries that they'll get hurt or that they'll experience some kind of um, trauma like himself. And he just doesn't want to have them go through that. So again, there's that 
there's that amygdala, you know, being overly worried, being overly kind of sensitive to dangerous things that, again, maybe aren't even dangerous. Um, he's also cautious himself about doing things that might be dangerous. And he kind of just said that he's quick to worry if he'll get hurt or injured. So that is in the back of his mind that, you know, this idea of like, well, will something happen to me? Will I be, will I get worried? Well, or not, will I get worried? He gets worried, but will he get hurt um, in, in what he's doing? And I would say, I don't think he said this, but I think probably it has held him back at different things. And maybe sometimes you force yourself and do certain things, but other things you maybe back away from. And maybe you don't even necessarily back away from, you just don't even give him a thought um, to some degree. And so uh, there's always that part as well. Um, so that was another aspect to this. Um, and uh, so the, the other thing is too, which I think a lot of people probably with trauma um, that I've worked with have this similar thing um, is that they do not like not being in control. So whether it be things like being on an airplane um, or a car where he's not driving, those things also make him very anxious. And one of the things I thought was interesting too is that he did admit to this, so this is not me just saying this, but he said that he's overall, he feels like he's just, he's kind of a glass half empty person. So kind of looking for what bad could happen. But again, that's set up through all this stuff. As we talked about the brain stuff, that's kind of where that comes from. Um, and that's kind of the first thing I thought about is after I, after I talked to him was one, there's a broken amygdala if I've ever seen one, which I haven't seen one, but you know what I mean? Um, that really this faulty alarm system that is signaling danger when there's none or you're anticipating danger or you're worried about danger or anytime you're in a situation, like you said, without that control, it, it, it gives you a sense of added anxiety because uh, you're worried about what's going to happen. And the other thing I thought of is then, you know, ultimately when we're constantly fighting unseen dangers, which I had talked about earlier, what does that lead to? It leads to exhaustion. It leads to being worn out. And, you know, why do I say that? Well, I know that my brother uh, struggles with anxiety, which I feel is, you know, in part, part result of obviously his trauma. But I also think part of it escalates because of the over sensitivity to danger. Um, and, and the more that we feel that, the more our body gets used to kind of that anxiety and then it perpetuates itself. But also, too, I think our anxiety increases when we become more exhausted. Meaning when our body kind of starts to wear out, our anxiety will start to intensify because we can't do the things necessary to sort of calm it down and to relax that. And so the anxiety can kind of continue to get worse and worse. So, so those things, I mean, obviously I feel for him and what he's gone through and the, the things that he's had to endure as a result of the trauma um, that kind of linger there. And that that's a big one. Um, so in essence, you know, I think that this is something that we can all, um, you know, maybe not maybe all connect to directly, but just see kind of through some of these experiences that trauma really can suck the joy out of our life. And the longer that it goes unresolved, the more we end up suffering. And that's, to me is really the sad part is just the suffering that goes along with this unresolved trauma for people in so many different ways. And obviously, like you said, you know, even with my, you know, client before, you know, even 
the one that with the the sexual abuse, I mean, not even recognizing, you know, he probably would have never connected those things, you know, how they come together and how they're related. Um, but so our ability to recognize the patterns and see, you know, that that trauma connection is really important to the part of the healing um, process. So that's something I think we can all ask ourselves, how am I organizing my life in a way that's, you know, perpetuating that trauma forward? Um, so another part of this this section is that Dr. Ben Hardy, who has uh, who has a book called Personality Isn't Permanent, he shares some info in his book about trauma, which I found very interesting. And uh, he said the following in regards to trauma: uh, What is sad about this process is how we govern our lives. Instead of creating a life that we truly want, we often end up settling for lesser goals in order to avoid pain. Um, we ultimately then build a life that allows our problems to exist unresolved. Um, something that I thought, again, kind of another important part of what he said, we are kept from our goals, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. Um, so when you think about that, um, again, it's kind of a sad thing that, you know, we end up instead of creating a life that we truly want, as a result of our trauma, we just end up settling for lesser goals in order to avoid pain. So if something could, you know, possibly be good for us, we might want to strive for, but because there potentially could be pain with that too, we may just take that easier path. So like that quote said, um, the clear path, you know, it's not always these obstacles that get in the way. It's just that, hey, there's less danger this way, so let me go this way, or there's potentially less pain, so let me go this way. Um, it's like, uh, the, the idea, um, around, um, uh, you know, like I mentioned before my client that with the sexual abuse thing, it's like, you know, the lesser goal is for me just to, uh, meet the needs of other people. You know, that's less painful. It's meaning like it less, there's less to come back at me if something goes bad or something goes wrong. Um, but if I, in some sense, you could say maybe be selfish or, try to meet my own needs and then bad stuff happens, then it's like, that's just going to be more pain there. And that's how you see it. I mean, again, that's not necessarily what the reality is, but that's how, that's what we're afraid of. And so it's just easier to, uh, again, go that towards that lesser goal. Um, and I think part of that too, is just the fact that trauma can, you know, trauma also can stop us from being psychologically flexible. So we're not able to open ourselves up to a different way of seeing we just become very rigid in our thinking and our way of operation so so in many ways the patterns around um trauma have to do with fight or flight or having you know to go about protecting ourselves and avoiding pain um, and that's really what it comes down to is that we just you know we go to protecting ourselves and avoiding pain and it's done through this fight or flight thing and something i wanted to to kind of like throw out there too just as far as you know kind of going back to the previous podcast with theo flurry um, when we talk about this idea of kind of like not creating a life that we truly want remember what theo said in relation to what trauma kind of teaches us it teaches us abandonment and neglect it teaches us that we're not good enough it teaches us that we're not lovable and that we may not even exist. And so I think that's something that we need to be mindful of too, is just the fact that there are these things, these messages that 
come to us as a result of our trauma. And if we don't understand them or identify them or know how that that's happening for us, we end up continuing to perpetuate them forward and not feel like, you know, we deserve a good life because we have to continue to, you know, live out this trauma that has impacted us. So lots of stuff there, I think, to think about in, in relation to um, just our overall trauma and what the patterns can be. And hopefully, you know, we can ask ourselves that question, how am I organizing my life in a way that is kind of saying that the trauma is still there and it's still um, in some sense controlling my life. And as you think about that, really dig into those patterns and really see, you know, am I in this fight or flight or how does the fight or flight show up? What does it do? And how can I be better at moving past that? And again, a lot of times we're going to come up with these obstacles with messages that we feel about ourselves and things that we maybe feel like we don't deserve. So healing is all going to be a part of like overcoming that and working through that, which obviously I want to get to right now is the healing aspect of things. All right. So as we get into healing, um, I just first want to say in relation to the healing of trauma is that that in reality, I think I mentioned this before, is just it's probably an episode just in and of itself is the whole healing process. And so I'll most likely try to tackle that in a later episode. But I wanted just to kind of go through some nuts and bolts of the healing aspect of things. So if you're in a place where you're wanting to start down that path or that journey, that you kind of have an idea of what to expect or what you should be looking for in terms of treatment and things of that nature. Um so I think the first thing from a hope standpoint that's important to understand is that, and this comes from the, the book um, by Ben Hardy, and he says, we should know that all painful experiences can be reframed, reinterpreted, and ultimately used as growing experiences. Um, so that's a good thing, you know, that to know that the difficult things that we've gone through can be reframed, reinterpreted, and basically turned into something that's more of a strength rather than something that is negatively impacting us. Um, I think some treatment options, treat, treatment options just to kind of go through a couple, obviously EMDR is a big one. Um, and then pr there's prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. And there's just general also some talk therapy type things where you hopefully will get into some different techniques about um, working through the trauma, working through the issues that go along with that. Uh, but I think some key aspects that are important to, to seek out is that because trauma almost invariably involves not being seen, not being mirrored, and not being taken into account, treatment then needs to reactivate the capacity to safely mirror and be mirrored by others. And this includes uh, being able to resist being hijacked uh, by others' negative emotions. And really what that means is just that when we're in that traumatic state and we're kind of we, we're around others and our trauma is sort of controlling us, we tend to get overwhelmed by others' negative emotions. Maybe people might refer to that as being triggered. Um, and so when that happens, then those we get hijacked by that and we're not able to um, have any kind of self-regulations, again, because of the trauma. And whether it's the amygdala or the frontal lobes, we don't have the ability to reconcile that in an effective way until obviously we have some some treatment and some healing. Uh, treatment should also help us to gain mastery over our own internal sensations and emotions. Um, and we can do this by beginning to name, identify, 
um, by sensing, naming, and then identifying what's going on inside of us. And kind of in relation to the previous one, I think this is critical to the processing of times when we're triggered and to kind of help us to restore that balance. So when we can sense what's happening in our bodies, when we can name it, and then we can identify sort of what ultimately is going on, it helps us to process through those things in a more effective way. And like I said, being able to then restore that balance. Um, another key component to, to treatment, which I think doesn't get talked about enough, and this is something that I think is super critical, and I'll tell you why, but it's, it's really um, the importance of like dealing with shame as a part of our treatment. And the reason is because shame becomes the dominant emotion that's connected to trauma. And I think my interpretation of this and kind of the reason why I think this is the case is that shame is often the result of people not being the person that they want to be because of their trauma. You know, we talked about earlier about how people don't end up living the life that they truly want. So there's a there's a consequence for that. And I think sometimes the consequence is they feel shame. You know, when you don't feel like you're being who you would like to be or who you want to be, that letdown or that disappointment is felt internally in the form of shame. Um, and because even more to that, the person often feels like they can't be fully present, um, whether it's at events or situations, um, because they worry about being triggered. And again, they'll, those are situations that they'll feel shame um, because they feel like they're disappointing those people around them. Um, and as a result, shame grows. You begin to feel worse about yourself and you feel more shame, you know. And so that's kind of where that happens. So if you think about that and you think about some of the things that go along with that, um, I said, just think about any event that maybe you would like to go to or feeling like, you know, there's this notion of, having a difficult time being fully present in situations where you can't maybe enjoy yourself as much or you're not really able to have the type of, yeah, I guess enjoyment or fun that you'd like because what's going on for you is, you know, you're on alert for what could go wrong or what might happen. So that lack of presence doesn't really allow you to enjoy what what is, you know, going on. And then after the fact, you might be thinking back, you're like, man, everybody's having such a good time. And, and I was just thinking about what was going wrong and I missed out, you know? And like I said, that perpetuation of shame really is impactful. And I, like I said, I don't think it gets um, addressed enough and I think it's there and it's impacting people in, in a lot of ways. So make sure if you talk to somebody or if you talk to me um, that, you know, we talk about shame and how it's impacted your life and how you carry your shame because um, that's a big part of the healing process. Um, we also need to have an empathetic witness for our trauma. Dr. Peter Levine, who is a trauma uh, researcher and specialist, he said, trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. So trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. And if you think about this, too, um, and what that means is that uh, research shows 90% um, of sexual abuse survivors don't report the abuse. 
they don't have that empathetic witness and they just hold that in and they carry around that pain and it just, you know, eats at them as trauma, as trauma does. Um, even going back to my last episode with Theo Fleury, uh, he probably went at least 20 plus years without an empathetic witness, somebody to share that abuse with. And, and he just carried that. And obviously we know what some of the coping mechanisms that he had as a result of um, just holding that inside. So I, I think that, you know, having that empathetic witness, having somebody that we can open up to, having somebody that we can share our pain with is, is critical. And so even if it just starts in that spot and goes from there into some of the other things, uh, it's definitely an important aspect of the healing process for us. Uh, finally, I, th I think that treatment needs to help you learn to live in the present to it, it learn to live in the present and to enhance the quality of our day-to-day -day experience. Bessel van der Kolk, who is the author of The Body Keeps Score, I should have mentioned that earlier, um, but he says that we must most of all help our patients to live fully and securely in the present. And in order to do that, we need to help bring that bring those brain structures back that deserted them when they were overwhelmed by trauma so that's our goal that's what we strive for in treatment that's what whoever you seek out um, whether it be myself or somebody else um, should do for you is to help you to bring yourself back to the present restore those brain structures help them to function more properly um, so that you can have that sense of living more fully in the present. Um, and that really sums that up beautifully. I think for me, my hope for all of you, um, the clients I work with and anyone who deals with trauma in their life is that they are able to have that experience that they can live fully in the present, that they can live their life in the way that they truly want, but they don't have to settle for the lesser goal or settle for something um, that they don't feel like that because they're not, they don't feel good enough that they just kind of go towards that, but they can have whatever they want, that they can have that healing from their trauma and they can live the life that they deserve and that they deep down desire. Uh, I know for myself, I'm excited. Um, the middle of August, I'm going to be doing the EMDR training and uh, just grateful about that opportunity to enhance my skills and helping those who I treat that have trauma. Um, there's just such a high need for it. I just think, you know, as I've been thinking a lot about trauma the last couple of weeks, uh, it's just so much a part of our society and so many people. Um, well, I think we all have trauma in different, different levels. Um, but there's just so many people running around with unhealed trauma. And if we can just kind of help them in any way we can, whether it's by being an empathetic witness or whether it's by, you know, encouraging them to seek treatment, um, giving them that sense of compassion, like, hey, now's the time. It's a good time to, to, to help yourself. You deserve it. Um, I've seen some great things on Facebook recently about mental health and people advocating for it. Again, Theo Fleury is a huge advocate, as he mentioned in the podcast. And I just think there's just there's no shame in needing that help, especially when it comes to trauma. Um, you know, we didn't ask for the trauma. Trauma happens to us. Um, and then the fallout is what it's going to be. And we didn't, like I said, ask for that. So I just hope and encourage that uh, if anybody's listening that is on the fence about that, um, that they reach out, 
ask for help and um, live the life that they can live. Uh, so this is the Vegas therapist signing off until next time. And again, just a quick reminder, if you can go on to Apple rate and review the podcast, I really appreciate it. And thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.